Hello and welcome to the Maps Canada podcast. I'm your host, Siddharth Rankarua, and today I'm proud to present the first episode in our two-part series on the history of psychedelics in Canada. Of course, this is a fairly large topic, and understanding that we couldn't possibly give the full history, as it were, our aim with this series is to offer a high-level overview of Canada's checkered past with psychedelics. When you think about psychedelics, the things that may come to mind might be Timothy Leary, or the 60s counterculture movement in America, or Woodstock. But not many people know that psychedelics were well-established in Canada as early as the 1950s, as you'll soon find out, Canada was a global leader in psychedelic research. The word psychedelic was actually coined in Saskatchewan. In this episode, you'll be introduced to the pioneering scientists and advocates who established a rich culture of psychedelic experimentation in Canada and supported the cultural rights of indigenous peoples for psychedelic plants. Their aim was to alleviate the nation's growing mental health crisis in the aftermath of World War II. Later this week, we'll release an exclusive interview with Canadian historian and journalist Ross Crockford, who provides an inside look into the 20 years of research he's conducted on the groundbreaking work of Canada's psychedelic pioneers. And now, it's time to start our trip down memory lane. On November 16, 1938, while working at Sandoz Pharmaceuticals in Basel, Switzerland, Chemist Albert Hoffman accidentally synthesized a drug that would change the course of human history, lysergic acid diethylamide, better known as LSD. Our story, however, begins in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, when LSD made its way to a psychiatric hospital in the 1950s. Its effects were unlike any pharmaceutical used at the time. Little was known about the potential of this drug, and no one could have imagined that it would drastically change mental health care in Canada. The first key player in how LSD got its big start in mental health research was a man by the name of Tommy Douglas. In 1944, just before the end of World War II, Douglas was elected as the first so-called socialist premier of Saskatchewan. Douglas recognized the need to invest in medical research and initiate policy change to address an emerging mental health crisis associated with the trauma and long-term psychological harm caused by the war. His government established a platform that promised to reform the province's medical system. For the first time since 1944, members of Canada's only socialist government will admit privately that they have a fight on their hands. If they do go down, and they won't admit that even privately, they may have already won on their major issue. Two of the parties opposing them say that whether the CCF wins or loses, the people of Saskatchewan will somehow or other get a state plan of medical care. It'll be the first in North America, and it's being fought bitterly. It was Saskatchewan, of course, that started a hospital plan in 1947, something we've all accepted since. At the time, psychiatrists primarily relied on Freudian psychoanalysis, which was motivated by the idea that psychiatric disorders were caused by childhood traumas. This method wasn't suitable for treating the rising cases of PTSD, which was clearly not related to childhood trauma, but rather directly to the war. The situation began to change as psychopharmaceuticals were introduced to Western psychiatry, mainly from Europe and in the form of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. They were marketed to psychiatrists as a way to elicit the repressed memories of World War II veterans. These drugs became widely used, which shifted the way scientists and doctors thought about the nature of mental illness. 
Suddenly, there was a growing consensus that psychiatric disorders were the result of chemical imbalances in the brain. For Tommy Douglas's government, the hope was that these novel drugs would transform mental health care, thus delivering on his promise of improving mental health care and the medical system as a whole. Douglas's luck really struck when he began recruiting researchers from around the world with the job of discovering the chemical underpinnings of mental disorders, many of which ended up at Saskatchewan's Weyburn Mental Hospital with LSD at their fingertips. Soon after, Weyburn became the birthplace of psychiatric experimental culture throughout Saskatchewan, and what's more astonishing is that it was home to some of the first LSD experiments on humans. One of the first researchers to arrive in Weyburn was British psychiatrist Dr. Humphrey Osmond. While in London, Osmond had gained interest in hallucinations and psychotic disorders. Once in Canada, he was appointed the clinical director and later superintendent of the hospital. It was here that he met Dr. Abram Hoffer, a Saskatchewan-born psychiatrist and biochemist, not to be confused with Hoffman, the man that synthesized LSD. He was also the researcher for the Psychiatric Services Branch of the Provincial Public Health Department in Regina. The two began to collaborate and together established the largest psychedelic research program in the world. At the time, Weyburn Mental Hospital was one of the largest asylums in North America, and it was grossly overcrowded. Hoffer and Osmond, who were determined to reform the system, envisioned that LSD would change healthcare across the country. Here's what Hoffer had to say about Humphrey Osmond and the impact he had during that time. I've always given Humphrey credit for the, the immense contribution he made. He really made, he was the single most important catalyst. Had he not come to Saskatchewan when he did, I doubt I would have gone into this field at all. And my guess is that I would have become a straightforward, standard, conservative, orthodox psychiatrist. LSD therapy was quickly gaining traction across Saskatchewan. There was a lot of hope placed in LSD, as it was seen as having the ability to provide the equivalent of 10 years of traditional talk therapy. Particularly, it was recognized as a promising new method for treating alcoholism, which was encouraging because mental hospitals were struggling with the growing number of individuals who had turned to alcohol to repress traumatic events experienced during the war. Research on LSD, and then later mescaline and psilocybin, was carried out across Canada over the next 17 years. Back in Saskatchewan, it was very quickly realized, in just under a year, that LSD was a powerful substance that could treat alcoholism. By the mid-1950s, scientists like Osmond and Hoffer turned their attention to a psychedelic plant called peyote. Peyote is a cacti that consists of a naturally occurring psychoactive compound called mescaline, which has similar hallucinogenic effects to LSD. At the time, Western science remained completely divorced from the importance peyote had in religious and cultural practices amongst indigenous peoples. It was largely ignored by the government too, that is, up until it gained attention, after it was discovered that mescaline could be extracted from peyote and used for its therapeutic effects. Now, I want to take you back a little bit to the mid-1940s. Recall, pharmaceuticals hadn't had a place in Canada yet, and Hoffman still had LSD locked up in his Swiss lab, unaware of its dramatic effects. Even though peyote had been used in indigenous American traditions for over a millennium in the United States, at this time, it was making its way into Canada, particularly Western Canada, and integrating itself with First Nations practices. 
Emerging as a key figure in this integration process was Louis Sunchild, the chief leader of the Sunchild First Nation, a Cree First Nation in Alberta. In 1954, Sunchild introduced and escalated the use of peyote in Saskatchewan. This influenced the legal right of Indigenous peoples to honor peyote with religious rights under the Benevolent Societies Act. However, given that Saskatchewan was in a period of unfettered experimentation, the use of peyote was widely debated amongst politicians as to whether it was a legitimate part of religious ceremonies and whether it could be implemented in conventional medicine. The opinions and views on peyote were polarized. Some argued it was a harmful narcotic associated with cult-like behavior, while others voiced it was a potential therapeutic remedy for psychiatric disorders. Anti-peyote proponents searched for ways to outlaw the substance. They turned to the scientific community for evidence of its toxicity and harmful effects on the body. They consulted Osmond and Hoffer, who both argued that the negative perception towards peyote was unwarranted and the two pushed back on those who lobbied for peyote to be classified as a narcotic. On one special evening, on October 6, 1956, Osmond was invited to participate in a peyote ceremony with the Native American church. The ceremony was led by the church's president, Frank Takes Gun, who was visiting from Montana. It took place near Fort Battleford, Saskatchewan, with a handful of other observing physicians, including Dr. Hoffer, it was here that Osmond became the first person to take part in a traditional peyote ceremony in Canada. The ceremony was documented and published as a story in a Saskatoon newspaper called The Star Phoenix. After the service, Dr. Osmond explained his feelings as best he could. For, he said, it is practically impossible to impart them to anyone who has not experienced the service. At first the drumming bothered him, but afterwards he felt he wanted to sing too, but could not because he knew no songs. The drawing began to make sense to him. The feeling was much the same as suddenly understanding classical music after listening to it for years and hearing only sound. Before leaving the teepee, he spoke on behalf of the observers. It has been a beautiful and unusual ceremony. People may not understand it, they may not want to see it, but they should not be allowed to harm it. Osmond argued that peyote, like anything else containing a powerful chemical substance, should be handled with respect acknowledging that it could be harmful in the hands of a foolish, cruel, or malignant person, he wisely countered, is there anything so good that the fool, the brute, or the wicked cannot pervert it? In the end, no formal laws were in place to regulate the use of peyote. The substance circulated freely in both religious and medical research contexts with few barriers. Osmond and Hoffer began using both LSD and mescaline in two research programs set up to be used at the Weyburn Mental Hospital. The first research program studied psychotic events in patients diagnosed with schizophrenia. Osmond believed that LSD and mescaline could mimic the hypothesized chemical imbalance that resulted in the psychotic events experienced by those with schizophrenia. This program actually involved administering LSD or mescaline to healthy doctors and nurses, so that they could get a sense of what a psychotic event was like. This experience would also give doctors and nurses some insight on how they could help care for their schizophrenic patients. New chemicals allow us to experience some of the unbelievably unpleasant and sometimes quite terrifying mental agonies of the schizophrenic patient. To some extent, to put ourselves in his shoes for a few hours. These people have terrible experiences. That's why they're so tense. 
We know that seemingly small errors made in caring for them will cause that tension to rise. By using these drugs, he developed a new model for understanding schizophrenia that could be utilized by healthcare practitioners to gain a deeper understanding of what patients were going through. The second research program was set out to explore the effects of LSD and mescaline on alcoholism. Dr. Hoffa, uh, why do you use it for that purpose? In my opinion, Mr. Burton, and this is based upon 500 cases that we have treated over the past eight years, uh, we selected alcoholics because it is often easier to know whether they are improved or not. And many of our people had not responded to the best treatment that we could give them. And they are now sober and good people. Osmond and Hoffer hypothesized that an LSD trip was analogous to the experience of rock bottom, or the point of no return, endured by alcoholics. It was thought that an alcoholic would only seek help if they reached this so-called low point in their life. Osmond proposed that early intervention with psychedelics could simulate the experience of rock bottom, without deteriorating the body by further alcohol use. They also hoped this would deter criminal or aggressive behavior associated with alcoholism. Osmond's studies involving LSD and mescaline therapy on alcoholism resulted in hundreds of patients being treated, with a 50-90% to 90 success rate. Osmond and Hoffer published several of their studies in medical journals, which generated attention from scientists and doctors around the world. The healthcare reform that Tommy Douglas envisioned was in full force. Mental institutes changed the way they trained their staff, as physicians, nurses, and care aides were encouraged to undergo psychedelic therapy to relate with their patients. This even helped staff guide patients through safe and comfortable sessions that reduced or avoided the anxieties that some hallucinations could cause. This ultimately changed the design of healthcare, which shifted from overtly disconnected treatment within patient care relationships to a more healing centered and empathetic treatment. Saskatchewan became the epicenter of a new reform in medical care that had gained worldwide attention from a diverse range of people. In March of 1953, Osmond received a letter from famous English author Aldous Huxley, who had become curious about psychedelic use. In his letter, he asked Osmond to visit him and guide him through a psychedelic experience. Two months later, Osmond traveled to Los Angeles to meet Huxley, and with him, he brought mescaline. Huxley wrote about the experience in his book The Doors of Perception, which was published a year later. In it, he described his experience with mescaline as, without question, the most extraordinary and significant experience available to human beings, this side of the beatific vision. Huxley's book played a significant role in illuminating the potential of psychedelics. Hospital directors, scientists, nurses, theologians, and indigenous healers and shamans, both within and outside Saskatchewan, sought out advice on how to benefit from psychedelics in their own line of work. This encounter between Osmond and Huxley also gained attention from journalists, actors, and musicians from around the world. It shaped the way society perceived psychedelics. What's most special about this encounter was that it was the start of a decade-long friendship between Huxley and Osmond, which was fortunately documented in 700 pages worth of letters that were safely stored and subsequently published. The most famous and influential letter of them all 
was the one in which Osman referred to LSD and mescaline as mind manifesting and coined the term psychedelic for the first time. To fall in hell or, or so angelic, you need a pinch of psychedelic. At least that's how I recall it, and I'm not sure it was necessarily that, but that's, that was certainly the gist of it. It was in 1957 when reports of a miracle cure for alcoholism circulated into British Columbia. This prompted a community of psychedelic users, which also included local Catholic churches. Compelling news stories and local networking facilitated the use of LSD therapy across the Lower Mainland, and one facility in particular became world-renowned for its work on psychedelic therapy, the Hollywood Hospital. Back then, Hollywood Hospital was a private mental health care facility in New Westminster, located just outside of Vancouver. It had recently appointed Dr. J. Ross McLean as its new medical director. When it was first opened in 1921, Hollywood Hospital was a medical facility for tuberculosis patients. Upon McLean's arrival, the hospital became primarily known as an LSD and mescaline treatment center for alcoholics. Initially, this resulted in skepticism across the board of the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons lobbying against psychedelic therapy and petitioning for the provincial government to revoke the hospital's funding. Realizing the pressing need to voice the benefits of psychedelic therapy, McLean was quick in his thinking and reached out to an individual named Ben Metcalf. Metcalf was a staff writer for the province newspaper at the time, and McLean was hoping for some good press. In August of 1959, Metcalf arrived at the Hollywood Hospital one morning, where he was met by McLean and 400 micrograms of LSD in liquid form, diluted with water, and served in a crystal chalice. He went through a 12-hour-long LSD trip and detailed his experience in a five-part column called The Experience for the province newspaper. In one of the articles, Metcalf described the experience as a blast furnace of truth. To thrust these people into the blast furnace of truth and bring them out whole again requires a devoted technique of psychotherapy. Even the so-called normal person finds this moment of truth under LSD alarming before he passes through the crisis to the exhilarating renunciation of his facades. Several decades later, in his early 80s, Metcalf, in an interview with journalist Ross Crockford, recalled that LSD trip as one of the most defining moments of his life. It was only after his experience on LSD that he realized that, and I quote, life in itself is the greatest experience. Metcalf's guide was none other than Al Hubbard, aka the Johnny Appleseed of LSD, the very man who turned American psychologist and psychedelic advocate Timothy Leary onto LSD. In fact, it was only a year after Metcalf's guided therapy that Hubbard did the same for Leary. Hubbard's interest in psychedelics traced back to 1951, when he was reading a scientific journal that was popular at the time called the Hibbard Journal. In it, he came across an article on the effects of LSD on rats. For some reason, it called to Hubbard. He immediately found the scientist that was behind the study, and this led to his first taste of LSD. It was British psychiatrist Ronald Sanderson who dosed Hubbard. Hubbard recalls witnessing the day he was conceived. In a 1987 book called LSD and the American Dream, Hubbard is quoted as saying, It was the deepest mystical thing I've ever seen. 
I saw myself as a tiny mite in a big swamp with a spark of intelligence. I saw my mother and father having intercourse. It was all clear. After his experience, Hubbard made it his life's mission to spread the word of psychedelics around the world and played a major part in designing the Saskatchewan research programs carried out by Osmond and Hoffer. Being a devout Catholic and wealthy entrepreneur, Hubbard had a large network of contacts, both within the church and amongst business owners in the Lower Mainland. His presence in the psychedelic community and Lower Mainland as whole resulted in a shift in the way British Columbians perceived LSD. Members of the Catholic Church that Hubbard attended began publicly writing about their LSD journeys. There's even a record of a letter written by a Monsignor from Vancouver's Holy Rosary Cathedral, promoting the scientific and spiritual exploration of the drug. We therefore approach the study of these psychedelics and their influence in the mind of man, anxious to discover whatever attributes they possess, respectfully evaluating their proper place in the divine economy. This was meant to be an introduction to LSD and a way to gain permission from the heavens for those embarking on an LSD journey. This further catalyzed psychedelic therapy at the Hollywood Hospital, with judges referring alcoholics to the hospital for treatment. Hubbard and McLean began publishing academic papers that claimed an impressive 80% efficacy rate of treating alcoholics. The therapies became increasingly popular and publicized as Metcalf conducted follow-up interviews with several patients, ranging from lawyers, journalists, housewives, administrators, and even sex workers. All of them claimed that they had been transformed by psychedelic therapy. Ross Crockford recalls interviewing Barry Leggett, a patient of Hollywood Hospital, in his Victoria home in 2001. He recalled being crippled with immense anxiety to the point where he could barely uphold his job as an inventory clerk. During his LSD session, Hubbard presented him with a bouquet of roses and said, I want you to hate them. The roses withered before Barry's eyes, each petal falling one by one, and he began to cry. Then Hubbard told him to love them, and immediately they came back to life, even brighter and more beautiful than before. Leggett explained his sessions as a realization that people can turn their relationships into anything that they want. He said, the way I was having trouble with people was coming from me. It was kind of like being reborn. You're ready to see things in a new and more positive way. But little by little, you keep running up against the same problems because the outside world is the same. It's amazing what Canada managed to achieve with psychedelics between the 1950s and 60s. It's surely a testament to our potential for using psychedelics as a therapeutic intervention and changing the way we manage mental health. In fact, just recently, a Victoria-based nonprofit coalition called Terrasil announced that a number of BC-based healthcare professionals legally consumed psilocybin for training purposes for the first time in 50 years in Canada. This concludes the first part of our series on the history of psychedelics in Canada. Be sure to look out for our bonus episode later this week featuring our interview with Ross Crockford, a Canadian journalist and historian, as he reflects on his encounters with some of the individuals who pioneered psychedelic research, including Dr. Abram Hoffer. 
In the next episode, we'll uncover more of Canada's history with psychedelics, exploring the societal shift to a more negative outlook on psychedelics, the agendas of pharmaceutical companies, and the politics that put an end to the growing body of psychedelic research. Thanks for tuning in to the MAPS Canada podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review and sharing it with your network. MAPS Canada is a registered non-profit charity. We rely entirely on the generosity of our supporters to fund our projects and research. You can support us by becoming a monthly donor or by making a one-time tax-deductible donation at mapscanada.org donate. Or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved in our work, please visit our website at mapscanada.org. As always, this podcast is brought to you by our team of dedicated volunteers, and we appreciate your support. It goes a long way in our efforts towards the legalization of psychedelics and ensuring their access as safe medicines for all Canadians. This episode was produced by Brendan Campbell. It was researched, written, and edited by myself, Chapreet Matu, Sean Hallam, Rebecca Truk, Monica Lau, Ross Crockford, and Bob Sibidlow. Readings by Sean Hallam, Chapreet Matu, and Brendan Campbell. Original music and audio engineering by Andrew Illman. We'd like to give a special thanks to Ross Crockford for providing research material and helping us make this episode come alive. I'm Siddharth Rankadwa, and thanks for listening.